Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hello there, and welcome back to our podcast. Today, my guest is Carl Honoré. Carl is an award-winning writer, broadcaster, and TED speaker. The Wall Street Journal hailed him as an in-demand spokesman on slowness. CBC Sunday edition called him inarguably the world's leading evangelist for the slow movement. His books, including In Praise of Slow and Under Pressure, Putting the Child Back in Childhood, are published in over 35 languages and are bestsellers in many countries. Could it be that the immense pressures we've put on our children to quote unquote, succeed in life are often the cause for mental disorders like ADHD? Could it be that simply slowing down in life and putting more value on calm, focus, energy, connection, purpose, creativity, and pleasure could make the symptoms of ADHD dissolve over time? Well. Those are exactly the kinds of questions Carl and I will be discussing today. So join us. I'm excited to welcome my guest, Carl Honoré. Thanks. I'm excited to be here with you. Well, I'm really just blown away by how you're hailed because um, I did some research. You are not only called a spokesman on slowness, a global guru on the slow movement, but my favorite is the unofficial godfather of a growing cultural shift towards slowing down. So I have to ask, what is slow? How did you get there? And uh, could you just tell us about your fascination sure. with slow? Let me let me just first say something about the godfather epithet. Um, I'm very fond of that, too, because it's got a slight edge to it. it. It sort of sounds to me always like. You know, if you don't slow down, you may wake up tomorrow morning with a horse's head on your pillow, right? So it's kind of like it's um it, it's got a slight sort of you know whiff of danger to it. But um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. let's leave that stuff to one side and go to what slow <laughs> is. Well, what, well, I'll start off by saying what slow is not. Right, this whole slow revolution is not doing everything very slowly, throwing away all your technology and, and living in the hills off grid and growing organic carrots. Right. I mean, that's one version of slow, but it's not the only version. This whole slow culture quake is really about doing everything at the right speed. So sometimes fast, sometimes slow, and all the different cadences and rhythms in between. Musicians talk about the tempo giusto, the correct tempo for each moment. That sort of gets at what slow is. I, you can also think of it as a state of mind, I suppose. It's about quality before quantity. It's about being present and in the moment. It's about doing one thing at a time, if you remember when we used to do that. Um, uh, slow really ultimately is about doing everything not as fast as possible, but as well as possible, right? Super, super simple idea, but an immensely powerful and countercultural one in this moment. Wow. And, you know, when we talk about slow in, in, in this way, um, I have to say, like, what happened to our society that suddenly everything has to be faster and you have to work longer hours and deliver things better, faster, make more money? Like, what happened? Well, I, I don't think it happened suddenly. It has been happening over a period of time. I mean, I think you could go, you can certainly go back hundreds of years, you know, even before the modern era, 
people could feel the itch of time running away from them, right? As soon as we mankind started measuring the passage of time, even with sundials, you could find people in ancient Rome complaining that their days were being diced up into smaller and smaller bits and they had to run to meet their next appointment. So this is not, you know, not that new a phenomenon, but what we've done in the modern era, of course, is we have exacerbated it. We've taken it and ratcheted it. We've turned the, the speed dial up to 11, right? And the, the reasons I think that has happened are, well, you know, you come into the industrial revolution and suddenly we have machines that allow us to do things faster and faster and faster. So expectations go up. Uh, we also, at the beginning of that industrial era, the time is money equation, you know, worked its way into our psyche, not only in the factory, but also in our private lives. We became obsessed with productivity, right? And the idea that the best way to get the most out of your time, the most money from your time is just to go faster and faster and do more and more with less and less time. So I think that is kind of welded its way into the cultural psyche. You get into the, well into the 20th century and you, we've created a kind of consumerist paradise, right? The world is this huge smorgasbord of things to do and eat and consume and experience. And the natural human instinct is to wanna have it all, right? But having it all is just the first step towards hurrying it all. So we find ourselves constantly chasing our tails on this endless hamster wheel, trying to squeeze more and more in and always feeling that we're, we're running out of time. There's never enough time. I think the workplace also has changed certainly in the last so 20, 30 years, you know, tighter uh, deadlines, more and more expectations that people work around the clock. Technology is a part of that as well. I think a lot of it though comes down to culture really. I mean, we, we, we like to blame our iPhones. We like to blame our bosses, but very often this is a cultural thing. And a lot of our own speed demonism, our own speedaholism comes from us. We're the ones driving our own impatience and our own chronic and obsessive desire to stuff every moment of the day with activity that comes from us. And I think a lot of it is a, a taboo in the culture that slow has over the years become a dirty word. It's a four letter word, right? It's a byword for lazy, stupid, unproductive, boring, you know, roadkill, right? So I think that means that even when we can sense in our bones that it would be good for us to put on the brakes, even when we yearn to slow down, right? We don't do it because we feel ashamed, we feel guilty, we feel afraid, we fear being left behind, right? So there are a lot of things intersecting here to create the speed industrial complex in which many of us find ourselves trapped. <laughs> it sounds a bit like time and money are the culprits uh, such that, you know, what did people do before time and money existed? They must have been more creative. There must have been more in the flow and enjoyed simple things. And yet they still survived. They still made it, right? It's not like that's what killed them. Yeah. I mean, People thrived, have always thrived throughout human history, right? And they've often thrived with less, which in some ways I think, you know, we may come to this later, but I think it's been one of the lessons of the pandemic is, you know, FOMO disappeared because you couldn't be afraid of missing out on things because there was nothing to miss out on, right? Yeah. And so what FOMO got replaced by with for many people was what the new phrase was just JOMO, right? Which is the joy of missing out, just the, the sheer relief, <laughs> physical, emotional, and existential not feeling that you have to rush, you've got to do this, you must do that, you've got to fit it all in, right? So the, that kind of less is more idea is really at the heart of the slow philosophy as well. And people mm. have have often been happier with less, let's be honest, right? It's, um, it's Well, isn't way, it kind of in, in, intuitively, we all know it, you know, I feel like we all know that like I have too many shoes or too many things. And when I have less, I'm happier. 
but we just keep going. Yeah, and every once in a while we have a little spurt of self-awareness and we try to get rid of all, you know, so we had the Marie Kondo moment, right? When everybody was, I was just throwing that. things out that didn't give them joy and they found joy and all that. But then, but then you know, Marie Kondo opened up a, a shop selling very expensive boutique items, right? And people <laughs> people moved on and, and went and got more shoes and more stuff, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think we, we have little times when it becomes fashionable to think about slowing down or less, but then the general trend tends still to be one of acceleration and accumulation and acquisition. That's the macro, but I think there definitely is. I mean, the slow countercurrent is stronger and stronger mm. all the time. So, you know, we may get the big spurt for everybody, and then many people go back to the roadrunner track. But at every step of the way, it seems to me, over certainly over the last 15 years, the number of people who remain in the slow track and say, you know what, I'm not going back to that chasing my tail hamster wheel roadrunner existence. That that part of the population is growing. And and just to circle back to one thing you said there about time and money. I, I do think there is another important dimension or motor to this whole fast forward culture. And that is, it's a kind of existential thing because for a lot of people, speed and busyness is a way of, it's a form of denial. It's a way of walling yourself off from the bigger questions such as who am I? Am I living the right life for me or my family well? You know, what do I wanna be doing with my life in 20 years? it's much easier just to cram your schedule with the small stuff, just sweat the small stuff and ask yourself small questions like, where are my keys? I'm late for my next Zoom, right? Um, you know, th that sort of thing. It's scary to stop and be alone with yourself. And it's scary, but it's, it's what launches us into a life worth living. I mean, Socrates, you go back to Socrates talking about the importance of the examined life. And you can only examine your life. You can only listen to yourself look inside and feel out who you are and where you want to be in the world. If you slow down, if you block out the sound and fury of modern life and just are quiet and still with yourself, right? And again, I think that's been a silver lining in the pandemic for many people is that they have had slowness, stillness, quiet forced upon them, right? right. Uh, chafed against it maybe at the beginning, but then began to slip into it like a warm bath and began to think, you know what? I'm starting to get a deeper sense of who I am and how I slot into the world, which is why if you look across social media now or the mainstream media or even your social circle, I bet you, I bet, I bet you will find, you are finding, right? Thousands of people coming out of the pandemic and saying, you know what? I had some time to myself to think things over and I realized I was living not the right life for me, right? And and so people are, are, are en masse changing, making big tectonic changes. They're leaving bad relationships. They're changing careers. They're moving from the city to the countryside or the countryside to the city. You know, they're, they're making those big changes that we push off to the fringes. We shut out of our heads with, with short-term speed and distraction, right? So I think that's one of the big benefits of what you gain is a, a knowledge of who you are, which allows you to forge the right life for you. Amazing. I love what you said. And, and I want to get back to this sort of then later weave this into ADHD. Obviously, that's what this podcast is about. But before we go there, I just wanted to find out. So was that what had you essentially decide to go on this path and travel the world and kind of find out like, what does it take to live a happier life? Or what was that moment, if you recall, where you said, this is it, I'm going to go do this? I know that moment very clearly because I can still remember like it was yesterday. And I, I, th I think we do all have when we get stuck in fast forward and speed and business and all that stuff is taking a toll on us. We often, we often need a wake up call, right? Or shock to the system, something that makes you pause and think, aha, I've, I've, I've lost it here. I've lost my compass 
and I'm paying a price. And for many people, obviously, that aha moment is, is an illness. Yeah, the body one day says, we're not doing this anymore. It's fast. And you know, get out of bed one morning or a heart attack or whatever. Right? And my wake-up call, when <laughs> it's, well, it's a while ago now, but it's when I, start, I started reading bedtime stories to my son. And I just, man, I was just so fast in those days, right? So I'd go into his room. At the end of the day, I'd speed read Snow White. I'd be skipping lines. I became an expert in what I, what I called the multiple page turn technique, which I do not <laughs> any parent. We've all done it, right? We all done it, let's be honest. But, but we all know it doesn't work, right? Because the kids know the stories back to front. So my son would always catch me out and say, you know, Daddy, why are there only three dwarves in the story? <laughs> what what happened funny. to Grumpy? And, and it was just horrendous, right? I knew it was wrong, but I just couldn't stop. And then I, then my aha moment was when I heard about a book called The One Minute Bedtime Story. So, you know, Snow White in 60 Seconds. And I thought, man, that's such a good idea. I need that book now. Amazon, drone delivery. And then the second, you know, light bulb over the head moment, I thought, nah, this is ugly. It's a thing I'm racing through my life instead of living it. And that for me really was the stop point when I just pushed pause and thought, no, I, I cannot... I'm just going way too fast. I need to reconnect with my inner tortoise. And that was, that was the start point for me. Wow. Yeah. That's, I can totally relate to that. Like just the other day, my, I was so tired and my little one said, can we please read a book? I was like, all right, we'll read a book. And I turn around and he's like this one. And it looked, it was one of those scientific books on stars and the galaxies and stuff. And I opened it up and he's like, yeah, let's read like 20 pages. And I looked at the pages. I was like, that's going to take like an hour, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I figured, you know what, let's just do it. And we started reading and reading and we both got tired and it all worked out. Right. But that, yeah. that, that stress came up, that anxiety of like, I'm going to be late and I'm going to be tired in the morning and it's going to be horrible. So I can totally relate. That's funny. Um, now let's talk about, um, you know, when we, when we look at slow and fast, when I hear fast, what I hear is pressure. Like somebody's breathing down my neck. I got to deliver. I got to show up. I got to go, 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 go. So this pressure and anxiety can't possibly be good for children. No, quite the opposite. In fact, I mean, I think for all of us, what it does is it, it locks us into the fight and flight mode, right? For our bodies, right? Where we're flooded with all the wrong hormones, stress, all that stuff, which is very useful in little bursts if you're fleeing a saber-toothed tiger on the savannah, right? And then you're safe, you go back to the cave and you just chill out, right? You're no longer stressed. The trouble is in the modern world, we, we, that, that, that mode doesn't switch off because we just stumble from one high pressure, high stakes moment to the next. And, and, and children as well, of course, now we've handed on this virus of hurry to the next generation. And what it means is that kids, you know, they end up marinating in all the wrong chemicals, right? And all the wrong sort of way of being biologically and chemically. And I think, I mean, I, I, it, it seems pretty obvious, right? That if you track the acceleration of childhood and the pressures, the kind of high pressure cooker, high stakes, high speed approach to child rearing, it tracks pretty clearly the rise of that with the rise of uh, physical ailments among children and a particularly mental health problems of a whole range, right? You know, it, 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 I think it's of no surprise to any clinician or frankly to any parent that that would be the case. Anyone who's got any experience of children will find no surprise in that, that, that statistical link because this is not what we're built for, right? We're built for something quite different, yet we're thrusting this 
pressure cooker atmosphere, this pressure cooker childhood on our kids. And, and they're paying a price, but we pay a price as parents as well. We all pay a price um, in different ways. And yeah, and it seems that this, this I call it sort of the carrot on the stick is really this uh, Ivy League type of life. This that you, the best schools and the best yeah. jobs and the most money and that equals happiness. Yeah, that's so I mean, true. I mean, this is part of what has happened with child rearing in the last, certainly the last generation is that we've created, we've, tur we've turned parenting into a cross between a competitive sport and product development, right? But it's part of a bigger picture, which is that we have made raising children a game of all or nothing, right? So I think a lot of parents feel, well, you know, my kid's born now and there are two tracks opening up in front of him or her. Track one, which is the track everybody feels they have to be on. That's the alpha track, right? So I don't know, they're in the gifted and talented program in kindergarten. They're at Mensa aged 11. It's Ivy League full scholarship at 18. And then they're a front cover of Time Magazine at 25, right? Or, or it's track two, which is, you know, hoodie, heroin addiction and homelessness, right? <laughs> which, which is preposterous, right? There's a million other tracks in between. But I think that for a lot of parents, you know, you're sitting around the kitchen table late at night, the winds of panic are blowing all around you. You're thinking, am I doing enough as a mom? Am I doing enough as a dad? You do, that's what happens when we panic, we, 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 get, we get tunnel vision. And I think there's often a sense that there's really only one way to be successful as a parent, one way for a child to succeed. And if you deviate even slightly from the alpha track, total meltdown, right? Total failure for you as a parent, for you as a child. And of course that makes no sense at all, but, but it makes all kinds of sense in that panic moment. And I'm, I'm a parent myself, you are too. I mean, we, we all get infected by that panic. It comes from different angles come from ourselves and it's very real right um the, the 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 key is to spot it as panic dampen it down and then you know understand that there are gazillions of different tracks to successful adulthood right there's not just two there really just aren't two there never were right right i love the hoodie one yeah that's such a doomsday prophecy it's like <laughs> yeah. if not your son will go to jail and be a druggie and you know um sleeping under a bridge right you know right it's either that or full scholarship at Princeton, you know? So you think, well, hang on, isn't there, what happened to the middle ground here, you know? What happened to all of those millions of people who are going to, you know, less brand name colleges who aren't maybe going to college at all and who are going out there and living magnificent lives and being of service and lighting it up, right? Right. It, it just seems so extraordinary. I mean, I think it's one of the weird paradoxes of the late 20th century, uh, 21st, this idea of, like we were told that globalization and was gonna create this, all this choice and, and, and what it seems to have done is eliminated choice. I mean, it's kind of rubbed away the edges and everything feels the same. You're, I mean, you're, you're walking down a street in London or Los Angeles and they've got the same stores and people wearing the same clothes, listening to the same music, right? And it, it sort of feels like the same thing has happened with the way the choices people have, life choices people have. It sort of feels like the, 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 the range of success choices, it's got so narrow, right? Um, so I, I think that it's part of the, what's what we're, inflicting on our kids is part of a bigger tectonic shift in the culture. And, you know, every culture ends up with the childhood that it, it deserves, I suppose, that it reflects right. its own weaknesses and neuroses and strengths too, right? It's not all bad. But. So that's interesting because if you look at those two tracks that you described, uh, ADHD fits right in there, right? Because you can say, well, if you're going to go to the, if you want to go to the Ivy League school and make it through and get there and be top of your class, you can't have focus issues. That's gonna be a problem. 
But if you don't handle that, then you might end up a drug user in jail, reckless driver, you know, all those, those things they talk about, those myths. Um, and so let's talk about ADHD. Um, I know you're not per se an ADHD expert, but just from your experience, from your what you've seen and heard, researched, uh, what is ADHD to you? Well, to me, it's a sort of suite of symptoms or conditions, right? Um, I mean, I think, again, as you say, I'm not an expert and I, I've sort of seen so many different reports on what it looks like inside the brain and so on, but certainly outside, like in, in terms of people's behavior and so on, it's clearly, it's a way of being, right? And, it's, and, and, and in a way, it's kind of very much of the moment. This isn't, I mean, I, I don't want to say this in a way that offends anyone, but we live in a kind of ADHD society, right? A society that is constantly distracted that really finds it immensely difficult to focus on one thing at a time. This is a, 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 a collective moment, a collective moment in history. So in a way, it doesn't seem surprising to me that we would be diagnosing ADHD as a condition more commonly in this moment in history, and that we would also be finding it or spotting it so, 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 so widely among children. Because um, you know, children, in any culture, children are the ones who generally pay the I don't, know, I don't know. That's a big statement, but I was gonna say they pay the highest price for uh, cultural failings and you know because we just hand this stuff on. They come out less formed. You know they're more at the mercy of the upbringing and so on and the and the and the, and the conditioning and the nurture and 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 it's to me it's it, it, there's there's no surprise that we're we've seen figures going up up through the roof um, on this and also in it, but it's also interesting that different countries come to it in different ways, right? In the United States you know, which is a country that loves a quick fix, that loves to medicalize things and loves to reach for a box of pills, right? I mean, the rates of giving, you know, Ritalin or whatever it is to children are in the last, certainly the last stats I looked at are way higher in the US than they are in much of the rest of the world. So there's another little wrinkle in the, in the question there is, you know, once you identify this condition, if you like, let's call it, what do you do with it, right? Do you reach for the pharmaceuticals or do you try and change the childhood the children are growing up in, and then maybe give them other tools to deal with those ADHD symptoms rather than a, than a, than a pill. Well said. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's in essence, when we uh, look at what you just said earlier, right? You said that these children's brains are flooded with, with the wrong chemicals, meaning if you're in fight or flight, right? You have all this pressure and anxiety and these chemicals come in. So then we go, oh, we just have to like, balance the chemicals, then we're fine. Right. Mm -hmm. So we, so we, we give them chemicals to balance it out, but we, we don't really address the cause. Like, why are they stressed? Why are they right on on guard? That's that's a, that's classic quick fix thinking, thinking, right. Is to, is to treat the symptom rather than the cause of the problem Uh, to get to the root cause of the disease or or the condition or whatever is just to say, okay, here's the symptom. I'm going to, it's like whack-a-mole, right? So you hear, you see one (laughs) symptom going to whack that down, but then of course what you end up with is other, you get other side effects and uh, spill on domino effects. And so it never, that quick fix thing, never solves anything. I mean, that you come back, I mean, my third book is actually called The Slow Fix, right? You know, it's all about the fact that the quick fixes very, very seldom work. Uh, they're, they're just Band-Aid solutions. You're putting on the duct tape, you're channeling MacGyver to get yourself through to the end of the episode, right? But that's not the way to deal with deeper, both medical, social, and also cultural issues. We need something, we need to slow down, look at the big picture, join the dots, 
think these things through and then come up with solutions that actually work that address the root cause otherwise we're just spinning our wheels in the in the in the dirt yeah and just let me ask you then uh in your opinion if we continued as a society with these quick fixes right with our children especially in regards to education or you know mental disorders mental health if we continue the quick fixes what what do you foresee uh could happen with this culture if we just continue well, going forward yeah i mean i think we don't need to look that far ahead already because we we see it now right just i mean epidemic is a big word it's a loaded word at the moment right but but i think we're getting to sort of almost epidemic proportions when it comes to children suffering from mental health disorders right whether it's um eating disorders uh, body dysmorphia anxiety depression uh, struggle to focus you know all these things I mean, these things are just going through the roof and, and you've always got to assume that it was probably there more prominently in the past and we just didn't spot it and so on. But I, I think that doesn't explain the whole story, right? So I guess if you're asking me to look into the crystal ball, if we don't get off the quick fix train now and start dealing with this in a serious, thorough, deep and lasting way, I mean, I, you know, it just gets worse, doesn't it? I mean, we, you know, you know that, that generation then, hits their 20s 30s they have the levers of power will they have it within them to reset the dial or will they just double down on the quick fix because that's what they've been brought up in i mean at some point we're going to reach a like an event horizon where it's going to be really hard to turn it back i think because we won't have enough people around who remember doing things differently who remember not being distracted all the time who remember you know children being allowed to act up or get into trouble or get distracted without immediately being put on a prescription. Um, so yeah, I think I, 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 I don't know where that event horizon, that cutoff moment is, but it, it probably isn't that far away because this thing has been coming to, down the pike for, for a good couple of decades. It, it, it sounds a little bit like your track with the, the, with the hoodie in the alley, right? It's, it, it's a bit like a societal hoodie, uh, yeah, yeah. doomsday scenario. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. So I always, almost make myself believe that we will turn it around. But, you know, there are, there are times, long nights of the soul where I look around and just think, wow, this, this is, this track is so ingrained. We're so far down it. It's going to be, it is, it's a super tanker. It's going to be hard. We will do it. Right. But, but it's not going to be a, it won't be a quick, like the slow fix will be slow. We're not going to turn this around overnight. Yeah. It's going to take a real shift in, in thinking in in spirit, in, just in so many things, right? I mean, just yeah. the way education systems are run, the way job markets are structured, this, the way we think about long-term finance, you know, there's so many things that need to be unwound and, 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 and rebuilt better so that we can solve these problems. And, and I think that, I mean, I hope, my hope is that, because one thing that really tends through, not just in Hollywood movies, but just in life and history, right? Is when someone feels their, their own children are threatened, right? That's when, that's when they go Rambo, right? That's when people really think, you know what? I, I, I'm going to do anything to fight for my kids, right? So, you know, I, I guess maybe there's a hope that as, I mean, we've already had a lot of years now of a lot of kids suffering, but, you know, if we get to a point where it just becomes so much everywhere, then people just think, whoa, we cannot, the next generation, we just have to think we have to do something drastic. We cannot fall back on the old pattern. So, Maybe there's some hope in there as well that it, it, the old, it gets so bad that we have to do something, but you know, it can't get any worse right. type thing. And the fact that it's children who are paying that price, maybe that will galvanize us in the right direction. Mm. 
Yeah. And how do you feel about labels, right? So I have this personal concept that if you label something with something or someone with a label, there is a, a, a creation that's happening. An agreement is being created every time it's spoken or talked about, right? And I believe if it's a disempowering label, then it's probably not going to have empowering effect. And if it's an empowering label, most likely it'll have an empowering effect, right? So what, what do you think uh, could a label do to a child when they're labeled with a mental disorder, right? In this case, we're talking about ADHD, but we can keep it general. Uh, what happens to a child when labeled? I think I, I, I agree completely with what you just said there. I think that uh, labels, I mean, they just become self-fulfilling prophecies, right? There's a self-fulfilling loop, uh, feedback loop kicks, kicks in. And I think that if you hang a label, which is a either a disease or condition or some kind of flaw on a child, especially on a child, what you're hanging a millstone, you're hanging an albatross around their neck that they will probably carry with them to the very end in some form or another. It will be there buried in the psyche somewhere. And, you know, some people will be able to slough it off and move forward. But I think everybody, most people will be, you know, they're, they will be hemmed in. They will feel to some extent defined and limited by that label. Right. And that's, that's to be avoided. I, I, I really, that's why even something like ADHD, I, I try to tend to stay away from it. I just feel like it does feel like a, a label that you affix to a person who then goes around the rest of their days thinking I'm ADHD. So that's the starting point. And then where do you, that, that immediately orients them in time and space, right? I'm the ADHD person. So these are my options. Those ones aren't really open to me. Uh, this is where other people like me have gone. So maybe I'm going to tilt that, you know? So I don't know. I would just always, just especially when I'm working with schools and children and families and so on, I always avoid a, a, a label and tend to, I was going to say fall back on, but no, I would embrace something more open and fluid, which is just using adjectives, you know, describing people's behavior and saying, and always putting it in a setting it in time and space. So saying, you know, at the moment you're fine, you're, you're, you're a, you know, you're working with a child who's eight, you know, at the moment you find it difficult to focus when you're sitting in class, but you know, you're sort of just planting that seed that this is a momentary thing. This is not fixed forever. It's, 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 it's bendable, right? It's protean. So mm -hmm. I think that's, I think, I think that's a really important, it's not something that people talk about enough. I think the, the harm that labels can do. So yeah. Yeah. And that. it's interesting because I recently had a very stern uh, academically superior, uh, uh, you know, expert on the show, which who was great. And the defense was what I call the, you know, the defense was, well, uh, you know, us medical professionals, we need a shorthand to identify blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, that makes apps. That's, that's not a good reason to label yeah. children with such a disempowering label. I understand what you're saying, but that alone shouldn't be the defense no, to have no. a label, you know? If you, like, if, you, if you do the kind of scales of justice there, on one hand, it's the convenience <laughs> of the experts versus all the harm. There is just no comparison there. You know, find another way to do it and, 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 and swallow the small inconvenience it's gonna cause you to not to have labels, right? I mean, I, for all the good it will do, tossing them out the window, I say, bring it on. <laughs> I, I agree. Well said. That's a good, I like that visual. That's really good. Um, so let's talk about, we talked about medication a little bit, but why do you think parents in the context of the quick fix? Yes. But 
why why really do parents uh, uh, reach so quickly for the pill? Um, yeah. Yes, it's a quick fix. Can we go? Is there something deeper of, of their own that that needs to be looked at? That well. I think, I mean, I think, it, <clears throat> I think a lot of it comes down to that quick fix, but you could have got to unpack the quick fix thing, right? It's, it's the, the whole culture telling you, I mean, especially on, I mean, I'm almost just blown away whenever I visit the United States, you turn on the TV, how many pharmaceutical ads there are. I mean, I don't think you see that anywhere else in the world. You just feel like there's this constant barrage, this message telling you, you've got a problem. Here's an instant solution, right? It's just in the oral and the visual wallpaper in a culture like the US just telling you constantly problem pill problem pill pro right so so there, 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 there's that that's in the culture there I think there's also something else going on which is that you know parenting is tough right it's it's hard it's messy it's open-ended it's exhausting it's exact I mean, of course it's you know it, it's got the other side which is it's luminous it's beautiful it's glory of course it's all that but let's be honest right a lot of it is just crap right it's just hard it's hard graft yeah and and i think you know it's easier sometimes not to to go the hard route right it's an e if you say to, okay if i'm not going the pill route then what's what what replaces it well time attention listening uh, allowing you know maybe for quite a, for for a period of time you know difficult behaviors to to flourish and to to take center stage and so you're learning and observing uh, your child and so on and getting to know what what the deeper you know that takes you know for for people who are maybe juggling a couple of jobs or stressed out at work or you know that that's that, you know it's a big ask right yeah. I, I i you know i you know it's a big ask it it, it is the imp most important thing you can do as a parent but that doesn't make it any less daunting right so i think i think there's partly that as well um and then you asked if there's something they needed to do themselves I mean, I suppose in many cases, and this is not going to be everybody's story, but you know, sometimes you've got a, a situation where a, a child is suffering from some kind of, you know, with some kind of struggle, whatever, some kind of mental um, problem, health problem, or whatever, and the par parent hasn't had that problem. We, you don't. It, it, I think for many parents, you know, their child is it's sort of the mini me in the world, right? It's a little trophy out there and it's the, it reflects back on them. And so if, the, if that child is thriving and doing well and everybody loves them, then that, you know, you feel great as a parent. If they've got, you know, if they're struggling to focus at school, you don't want to bring that up at a cocktail party, right? Or a dinner with the neighbors and stuff. So it, I think, and if you haven't had, if you maybe had an easier childhood yourself, for instance, you may just feel frustrated and think, you know, I, you know, so I can understand how you might want just not to deal with that, right? Because you don't have the experience yourself of it, perhaps, in your own life. Yeah, 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 that's true. And and, and does that, um, like, if, we, if we're going to compare slow versus fast parenting, right? Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that we also give our, our listeners, our parents, perhaps some takeaways, right? From your uh, learning, from your research, uh, from your books. Uh, what are ways that that parents can, especially parents who are living a fast life, whether that's a choice or uh, it's just the cards that they, you know, the hand of cards that they're dealt with, the deck of cards dealt with, like what can they do to slow down? Mm -hmm. Well, gosh, there are so so many things. I mean, let, we haven't really talked about technology at all so far. Let's talk about that. I mean, sounds good. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not a luddite. I love the gadgets, right? They're great. Have them all, but. But they they do get in the way, right? And and um, you've got to keep them in their place. And so a big part of any family finding that slower gear 
is using the off button, right? So what can you do? I mean, you can have a gadget box at the front door where everybody puts their phones in when they come into the house and, and they just stay there and, you know, until you actually need it or in certain times, or you, you know, set limits on screen time, or you have certain times of the day in the family home when every screen is switched off, right? So every, all the Xbox, the parents are off, everybody's off, right? And you just know that that, that time is going to be a sort of slower, more present, more, less distracted moment. Uh, you could have a, uh, this is works really well as well as having one room in the house. If you have a room or a corner of a room that is permanently screen free. And, and it's funny, I've noticed that in my house, how that works is that that becomes without anybody ever having to say so it becomes an oasis. It becomes a sanctuary, a place, you know, you can go and just relax, right. And be quiet, be still, mm -hmm. be thoughtful, reflect, and also chat, talk to people without the fear of interruption. Uh, another quick tip I throw out is, um, what I call the hide the phone technique. This is based on science that shows that when two people are in a conversation, whether it's a parent and a child, a you know, husband, wife, uh, two friends, boss, client, whatever, if there's a phone visible, just visible, it doesn't have to ring or illuminate or vibrate, just visible, those two people keep the conversation at a more superficial level. So you know, the next time or anytime you're with your family, your children, Hide your phone, right? You know, what we do nowadays so often, you know, we, we arrive at the table, the kid, you know, and it's like in the old Wild West saloons, right? You put your six shooter down. Now you just, everybody slaps their phone down, right? And just the very presence of the phone there is, is, is keeping people apart. It's blocking us off from each other. So just hide it. You know, that's what pockets and bags are for, right? So a little small, little slow gesture there can make a big difference to the quality of communication. Um, I think also jumping from technology to something adjacent to it is get out out of the house right and and get into nature i mean we know that being in nature is immensely <clears throat> soothing for human beings it's nature is the original classroom it's the place where slow learning happens so just get out into nature right get whether it's a park or a what you may, may not get out of your town or whatever but just get out into green space and and try and do that together as a family um and that makes a big difference as well to slowing things down so i mean i I do a lot of work on this, so I've got like hundreds of tips. So I'll draw a line there, and we of can course, of course. later. But there's well, a starting point for people. <laughs> what about uh, your book was called "Under Pressure: Putting the Child Back into Childhood." Yeah. What is putting the child back into childhood? I mean, you talked about going out in nature, and you mentioned uh, earlier that if kids are kids used to wrestle and and fight more, and that's now prohibited. There's even uh, one expert talked about like you can no longer throw snowballs at certain. Yeah. Uh, on certain campuses or, you know, school grounds, like talk to me a little bit about like, if, if you ideally could, if children could have the childhood that you, that you envision, what would that sure. mean to put the child back? Definitely. Um, I'll just give you one extra data point on the, on the, the cotton wooling of kids is that in, um, in Britain where I live, uh, you're now three children are now three times more likely to get hurt falling out of a tree Sorry, falling out of bed than falling out of a tree <laughs> because no one's allowed to climb trees anymore, right? Right, right. Um, uh, but so what would a slow childhood look like? Well, definitely would involve climbing trees. I mean, I think what children ultimately need is the time and the space to explore the world on their own terms, at their own speed, to run reasonable risks, to play freely without adults jumping in and telling them how to play faster or how to play better with metrics and targets and timetables. Um, and tests, all much less of all of those, uh, to get bored even, right? You know, we're also terrified of boredom nowadays, but, you know, throughout history, when a child was bored, 
that was the child's problem, right? You know, the, your, your mom or your dad would say, well, too bad, go outside and play or find right. a friend. Or they, or they use that eternal expression, use your imagination. Yeah. Now what happens, a child says to a kid, to a parent, I'm bored. And the parent feels like they're failing. Oh no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm failing as a mom, I'm failing as my dad. Where's the iPad? Maybe we need another extracurricular. No, what you need to do is back off, slow down and let the boredom happen. Because boredom is actually the, it's the trampoline, right? Towards creativity. It's in those moments of unstructured time, of not being quite sure what's coming next, of being feeling a bit restless. That's when children learn how to think, how to create, how to use their imagination, how to get along with their peers, how to enjoy the moment, how to look into themselves and work out who they are rather than what everybody else expects them to be. And so I would, I would say that that is kind of what a, a slow childhood is, right? It's, it's simply... It's, it's letting children be children, right? And I think we all kind of intuitively know what that means. We've, we've moved away from it. We've moved to this project management approach to kids. So, you know, a kid gets up in the morning and what do you hand him? He's got a schedule. He's got a target to hit. He's got a personal best to improve. You know, it's just sort of this endless Ferris wheel of measurable achievement. And yeah. squeezing out what childhood really is all about there, which is, it, is it sounds to, to find yeah. your own path. And it, it sounds exhausting just to when you when you talk about the pressures and the be your best and go, 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 right? And then when you talk about the boredom and the trampoline of creativity and the nature, I mean, intuitively, I, I feel calmer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah no, these are just words. So imagine what it's like when you actually do it, right? Right. Yeah. And, and it's not just, of course, it's not just children who find it calm. I mean, it's parents. I mean, when you give a child a slow childhood, you're, you're, you're actually reconnecting what it actually means to be a parent, right? I mean, it, it's such a relief when everybody, because you, you have to slow yourself down first as a parent. This is the thing. You, it's the old Gandhi adage, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. <clears throat> you can't give a child a slow childhood if you're racing around like a headless chicken, constantly looking at your phone, right? You can't. You have to find that slow inner tortoise as well. And then you create the space and the possibility for your child to do the same. But it's such a relief, right? Because the problem with turning parenting into a competitive sport is that it's exhausting, right? <laughs> Which is why you talk to parents nowadays and wherever, whether it's in the playground or the sports field or the school gate, you know, and they're just all exhausted. And they're saying, you know, and you, you scratch the surface a little and what do they all say? They're, they're saying, man, this isn't what I signed up for. This is kind of not what I thought parenting was going to be. It's just like a rat race. And it doesn't, it doesn't need to be that. In fact, it's a lot better when it's not, and not just for the child, for the parent too, right? It's such a relief when you can find that slower gear because everybody just comes to life. And that's perhaps kind of what I was feeling earlier when I was asking about like, what, what can parents do, right? If we unpack like, what they can do without before making their child the problem, right? I hear this a lot with ADHD. It's like, uh, well, the child's the problem. I mean, the child has the disorder. The child is not paying attention. Da, 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 da. So it's, it's almost like you can't avoid, like you can't avoid thinking of your child as a problem. But there's so much, like you said, there's so much parents can do, like just slowing down, being present, working. I call it like healing their own shit first. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually, uh, in our case, that's what happened with our son. Our, we started slowing down. He started slowing down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, he's still unique. He still sometimes needs to keep going. But so was I. I mean, you know, I turned out, I think. And so I feel like that's one thing that I get from this slow that 
what you just said is brilliant. It's like when parents, when we slow down, our children will slow down. Yeah. But I, but I think not enough parents allow for that to happen. So they'll never see their children slow down naturally. No, often what you'll do as a parent, if you're stuck in roadrunner mode, but you have read books about slowing your children down is you kind of then outsource the slowing down, right? So you, you send them off to a meditation class and you get them enrolled for some yoga or something. And, and that, that's, that doesn't really work, right? It's got to be anchored in a broader, more meaningful, more complete shift towards slowing down. Otherwise it's just window dressing. And right, it, right. I mean, it's only when parents do slow down, that's when you get to know your child. And that's the first I don't want to say rule of parenting because it sounds a bit bossy, but it kind of is, is to get to know your child, right? That's how you help them. You take them by the hand. I mean, I, I sort of, when I think of parenting and what I sort of think we want to aspire to is at the moment, it's sort of, here's my child born now. Um, I want to get him or her to this point in 21 years, right? And, And I'm going to strain every sinew of my body. I'm going to invest every spare dollar, every spare minute to drag him or her to that finish line that I've already pinpointed in the, in the far distance. That's fast parenting, right? Yeah. Uh, slow parenting is the opposite of saying here, you know, never mind 21, let me take you by the hand and together let's discover who you are, right? And, and discovery and slowness go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. You, you miss stuff when you go speeding through, everything becomes a blur. And it's only as a parent, when you slow down and you listen, you're, you're aware, you're attentive, you read between the lines. That's when you get to know your child. And that's how you're able to say, okay, I've got your hand here. I've got your back. Let's together find the path that works best for you. Slow is the, the only way to do that. It's the only way to do it. <laughs> wow. Now, now I really got present to why you embarked on this path. I know you were working on new books and you've also, uh, you know, started looking at aging and right process mm-hmm. of that. And, which is all connected, of course, but now I really got the the slow. It's such a simple uh, thing. It's such a, hey, just slow down, right? Chill. <laughs> <laughs> but then to actually do it and actually let it's go, doing. right? It's that fear of like, well, like you said earlier, it was brilliant. You said, well, it's, it's often looked at as a, a bad thing to be slow and lazy. And I remember whenever I would want to take a nap, right, in my 30s, I would, I would newlywed, I was, got married at 35, it'd be like 37, 38. I'm like, I'm gonna take a nap. And my wife would look at me like, really? And I was like, yeah, I'm tired. She's like, but it's like 1, 1 PM. Right. And I'd feel guilty. And then the same, (laughs) the same happened with her mom and her dad. I would see her dad come up slowly in the afternoon and be like, yeah, I think I'm going to go lay down. And she's like, really? And so it just, (laughs) When you said it, I was like, yes, like I get it now. But then when our body tells us to slow down and rest, if we just ignore that, then next thing is we drink coffee, we have uppers, we, you exactly. know. And then, and you, you're going to pay the bill eventually. You may not pay it today, but you, you're, you're just kicking it down fields. And, and, and <laughs> what you said, they're reminding me of something as well. People often say to me, people who are desperate to slow down, but are terrified of doing it. The, the first thing they'll often say to me is, man, I love this slowing down, but I, I just don't, I feel like if I slow down, life is going to pass me by. But actually the opposite is true, that life is what's happening right here, right now. And the only way to live it to the full is to slow down and be present through it, right? To be actually, actually to be there fully. That's the only way that you're going to get the most out of life. 
the fast way, well, that's just skimming the surface. You know, you end up at the end of the, your life looking back and thinking, whoa, you know, I can't even remember um, what that was all about. <laughs> this is the, yeah. because, you know, I think it's Milan Kundera, the Czech writer talks about the intimate bond between slowness and memory. And I think often that's a signal that we're living too fast is nothing sticks with us. We forget everything, right? You, you think, how did that Netflix series I finished watching last weekend? I can't remember, right? I, I'm pretty yeah. sure I, you know, or what do we have for supper three nights? Man, I did. Um, what was it my daughter said to me? You know, that sort of, that's that man, that is a red flag right there. That's wow. too fast. And that's how you create a life that's deep, meaningful, that has texture and color is by slowing down to the right speed in each moment. And then things will stick. You'll build up this beautiful, glorious, durable database of memories, right? <laughs> to look back on rather than just thinking, well, all you got is a bunch of to-do lists strewed behind you and you can't remember anything you did on them sort of thing. That, yeah. And I think that's, again, back to time and money, right? If a lot of people kind of similar to what you just said, when I talk to them about how our family slowed down and we moved from the city to the country and we switched schools to like, like no academics for, for two or three years, you know, more nature. And, and everyone's like, yeah, but how are you going to make money? Like it was an instant, right? Yeah. And yes, we were a little scared at the beginning because it was COVID. We, we, we changed the area. We changed careers, but you know what? I don't look back. It's been busier in a good way than ever. Uh, money has been following us whenever we needed it. It was there and we spent more time with our kids. Mm -hmm. And so I have to say, I agree that there's, there's actually a great life to be had once, once we really slow down, right? It's not easy, but, but no, I'm not, still but, working on it. But. but it's that old thing. I've, I don't think anybody lies in their deathbed and looks back and thinks, I wish I spent more time on Instagram, right? Or, or more time working and making money generally, I think not either. I mean, the stuff you remember is the slow stuff. It's reading that bedtime story, that book about the, the stars and astronomy to your, 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 your son, uh, that went on, didn't go the full hour, but you know, it's, you, you're going to remember that you wouldn't have remembered I, it if you'd done the speed, the multiple page turn technique on it. I can tell you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> those, those are the things that stay with you. Right. And and that's, it's what stays with you. The things that matter stay with you. Right. So that's another measure of how slow plays into all the good stuff. Uh, absolutely. No, this is great. Now I have one more question that sure. um, I'm going to try to make it connect because it's always uh, 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 sort of in the back of my mind is artificial intelligence, right? Now this is totally uh, what I call future tripping, yeah. but let's take our society a little into the future. Artificial intelligence is, is growing, you know, more intelligent and more dominant and replacing people's jobs and you know, we have half robots, half whatever you want to call them. Uh, how does how does the, the sort of the slow versus fast play into that? Like, like because yeah. AI right now is helping us to be faster, right? So your your movement is counter that, like slow down. Yeah, um, I would say there are a couple of ways to think about AI. One is, I mean, it partly depends on how good it turns out to be, right? So if it if it turns out that AI can only really do number crunching, right? If it can't do uh, creativity, like true blue sky creativity, if it can't do social, like the social connection, make us feel so, you know, like robots can't replace human social contact, then human beings, that slow stuff, human beings are gonna have a monopoly on that. And that's where we're gonna have to double down on that, right? We're gonna let the AI do the, the data, the number crunching, all that stuff. 
and we'll just leave that behind and focus on the things that humans are really good at, which is the slow stuff, which is the, the kind of big picture, woolly creative thinking and the socializing, right? The social bonding and connection. Now, if AI gets really good at those things too, now that we're, we may be in the science fiction realm now, but let's just, we're, as you say, we're future tripping here. So AI can do everything, all that stuff better than us. Then what does that leave? Well, that then presents us with the age old question of what do we do with you know, the whole kind of leisure versus work thing. We will have to create the society that people have been talking about since you know the late 19th and early 20th century with you know, Bertrand Russell and praise of idleness and all that, you know, creating a world where we may work for two hours a week and then we've got to find ways to fill the rest of our time that are meaningful, you know, that make leisure an end in itself, right? Make leisure something that's ennobling and fulfilling and being of service through uh, at the same time through leisure. So we will have to have a leisure revolution. And I like to think that we will, you know, that we would do that and it would seem pretty wonderful. I, but again, we're, we're now so far into the future that it's hard to know what, how this all, how this all right, uh, right. shakes out. But um, I, those are sort of the things, some of the things I've been thinking about AI is that, yeah, that it partly depends how it, how good it gets and then what we do with it. But um I think oh, yeah. also there's one little caveat I throw in, which is that, I mean, we're, I know we're early in the AI revolution, but you know, a lot of AI does seem pretty flawed, right? Because someone has to write the algorithms and that's going to be imperfect human beings. So a lot of AI, you know, we're seeing racial bias and misogyny and all kinds of stuff built into algorithms because the people who wrote them were misogynistic or racist or whatever, right? So, you know, I guess we could get to a stage where AI is so perfect that it writes more AI and then what's that is that the singularity i don't know that yeah. but then we're really into sci-fi but yeah anyway there are some there are some thoughts to chew over there, no that's that's great because i i always said that you know my, my theory is that if we medicate a lot of children for adhd and we sort of numb their emotions we kind of uh, uh what did you call it we smoothen out their edges right um and we fit them into boxes they're the ones that can be replaced by artificial intelligence in the future because like you said they're just number crunchers. They're like, they do things, what they're told to do, they do it, they conform, they go to work, they clock in and out, right? But then yeah. the, the, the the quote unquote ADHD children, they're more unique, more creative, uh, perhaps just more interesting to be around, um, can't be replaced because Maybe. you can't, you can't predict the ADHD them. children will inherit the earth. I mean, <laughs> uh, I couldn't have said it any better. <laughs> I'm glad you said it. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I just, uh, what a fascinating conversation. I'm really, um, I'm just really pleased we got to uh, have this conversation and, and want to thank you for making time and uh, uh, an acknowledge you for being what I call the army of us, people who are uh, really putting in the work to, to slow us down and to get us present to the moment and this preciousness that, that life is. So thank you for, for being thank part you. of that force. I've enjoyed it from start to finish and I'm, I'm, I'm ending the interview with my, my, my mind is buzzing and that's always a really good sign. <laughs> I love it. And and mine too. And I haven't had any caffeine. And I think that's the proof <laughs> that we don't need anything to get going, right? I'm so uh, yeah. Marl, I'm gonna I'm gonna mention obviously in the show notes uh your website and where people can reach you, your books and so forth. Um, I highly recommend to uh parents or other experts uh to to check out your work because it's it's just I, I hate to say it's simple and it's powerful, but really when I read 
through the materials. It was just like, I get it. And yet you're such a um, complex thinker and a deep thinker. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. That's a, that's a wonderful compliment. That's what I aspire to simplicity, but getting there via complexity. So that's a nice, that's a nice thing to hear. Thank you so much. Well, again, uh, thanks for your time and uh, maybe we'll do a follow-up sometime. We must. There's um, plenty more to dig into here. Until next time. Mm. Thank you. Thank you.